0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see if 1 Peter 4 is where we're going to be. We've got a lot of work to do, so we're going to jump right in. And it would be great if you had a Bible. And so if you need one um, underneath your seat, you should see the version that we use. And so that would serve you if you don't have one. So make sure you have something open on your lap there um, and that you're looking at it. 1 Peter chapter 4. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Um, if you're a Christian, I think it's healthy and good for you to periodically affirm that you are weird to much of the rest of the world. That You're weird. And so, I mean, just throw a couple of for instances out there. If you're a Christian in the room, you believe things like this, that God sent um, his perfect son, Jesus, like God is, like came down in the form of Jesus, right? So God is now on earth with us in the form of a man. And this man lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life. He died on the cross in your place and for your sin. You believe that God died on the cross for your sin, Right. So so we, we believe things like this, that he was buried three days in a tomb and that he um, was risen from the dead. Now, can we just all take a step back and say, you throw that out around a table of modern men and you're going to get a few sympathy laughs there, right? I mean, that that is automatically a little bit weird to, to much of the world. Okay, now Peter is about to press this one step further. He's about to take our weirdness one extra step as he's about to remind us of a monumental, like I'm talking, this is a massive truth that needs to settle over all of us in the room. And here it is. Verse seven. Do you see it? The end of all things is at hand. Th- th- that's a big one. Peter's saying that this is not um, just some peripheral issue. This is not just um, something kind of on the outskirts. This is a massively important thing. I'm telling you, like, I-, I don't think the tone um, would be this. I don't think Peter's tone is, uh, Hey, the end of all things, it's, it's here, it's at hand. I think his tone is, are you listening to this? The end of all things, it's, it's here. It is at hand. The, this means something for you. This is a paradigm shifter. Like th- this, this radically alters everything. When, when you get this thing down. I, I think it's almost as if Peter is saying, the, the end of all things is at hand. Now, Selah. Stop and think about that for a second. Meditate upon that for a second. Let that thought saturate your souls. Okay, now there's a sense in which Peter is introducing us to a big theological word here. It's the word eschatology. Okay, essentially that's a big theological word to describe um, the study of end times. Now this is when people get really crazy. Really crazy. This is when people start reaching for their charts and 37 left behind books, right? Okay, so, so people get really weird when, when you get into to this whole conversation. So I want to clarify um, this question. W- what is eschatology for? Like, w- what does God put in the Bible? Why does God put in the Bible verses like this and passages like this that remind us that, that there is more to come? that remind us of the final act, that Jesus is going to come back, that you're going to live forever, that there is a whole nother part of, of this thing called life, right? Why does, why does God remind us of these things? I want to give you two reasons for that. Here's the first one, the, the reason for eschatology, the reason the Bible kind of points points us in this direction to think about this, to to meditate upon this. Here's the first. Number one, it deepens our dependence and trust in the sovereign God of the universe. Eschatology is meant to do that for you. I, I would encourage you on a just a every now and then sort of periodic basis to make sure you read the last couple of chapters of the Bible in Revelation. And you know what that would do for you? It would help you see this. In the end, God wins. In the end, God wins. It would help build your confidence and your trust in a God who is sovereign over everything. It would help you see that in the beginning, God created the world, and in the end, the world will be at the, at the foot of God again. It will help deepen your trust in an all-powerful and sovereign God, knowing that there is no sin, no person, not even Satan himself, that will avoid God in the end. Right? So, so it deepens your dependence and trust upon a sovereign God um, of the universe. And secondly eschatology this idea of the end time stuff it's designed to help us practically to practically help us in holiness it's designed to be of a help to you it's not just something to be debated by you it's something that that god has designed to be of practical help to you now this is the funny thing when i think about this it's ironic that nine out of ten or maybe 99 out of 100 conversations that i've been in around end time stuff get really creepy like, does this happen then or does this happen first and then that? Like, how, like, it gets really creepy in that way. And very seldom were any of those conversations actually beneficial and practical in a help, like helping you or I in our holiness. But that is not God's aim for this conversation. God's aim in pointing us to the end times issues and things and stuff is to actually help you. So, so let me just survey a couple of passages in the New, in the New Testament that, that kind of show this and teach this. So this is going to be Paul. So we're out of 1 Peter. We're into Paul here. This is Romans 13. It'll be on the screen for you. How, how eschatology, the study of end time stuff, you marinating your soul in the end of all things is at hand. How that could practically help you. Okay, this is, this is Paul's words in Romans 13. This is verse 11 on the screen for you. He says this, Besides this, this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So when he says salvation, that's a future-oriented salvation. That that Jesus is actually coming back. Okay, So, so it's that sort of future orientation. Now in light of that, look at what he says. So then, so it's, You've got to know this, believe this, marinate your heart in that, so that, or so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Do you see the connection? It's you, you got to have this future orientation. And when you get that, when you believe that, when you're, when you're saturated with that, it produces this way of living. It's a practical help in your holiness. Okay. This is going to be, um, first Corinthians 15. Um, another example of this, Paul has just reminded the Corinthian church that there will be a day that Jesus comes back. He's going to split the sky wide open. He's going to come back for his bride, the church. And in that moment, he's kind of given this, this um, imagery of a trumpet sounding. And then you've got all of these bodies, physical bodies that have, that are, that are, have been dead and buried. They're, they're busting out, out of the grave and they're being reunited to the spirit, to your spirit. So he's painting this whole picture of that going down. And, and then in light of that, this is what he says. Therefore, so in light of what I just said, in light of me reminding you about this future reality, In in light of that, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. In light of that, be steadfast. In light of that, be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do you see the connection there? That this is meant to be, by God, practical help for you. It's meant to be a help in your holiness. Okay, now this takes us back to 1 Peter 4. And, and just to maybe take one step out of the fourth chapter, just so you've got a panoramic shot of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is filled with future orientation. It's all over 1 Peter. Out of the 105 verses that make up 1 Peter, 12 of those, so roughly 10% of the verses in 1 Peter, are meant to remind you of what's coming. 10%, 12 of the 105 verses are meant to remind you that there is more to life than just this life. That that there is more than just this few years that God gives you here. That there's more than that. It's reminding you of this future orientation. Okay, now the best illustration of this is is 1 Peter 4, 7. So let's walk through the logic here. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Okay, that's the massive, that's the big truth. And then he says, therefore, and then he's going to lay out some commands. But do you see the logic? The commands are rooted in the content of this massive reality that the end of all things is at hand. Do do you see how this is working? He's saying that you've got to know this truth, therefore you can do these things. Do do you see see the link here? The commands he's about to give are rooted in the content of this massive reality that Jesus is actually coming back. are, Are we tracking with that? Do we see that? So it's important. You get this link. The commands are dependent upon you knowing and believing and you marinating your heart in and seeing this big truth. Okay. So the question is, um, what is this truth? Like, what does it mean when he says the end of all things is at hand? What does Peter mean? Okay. So I think this is what he doesn't mean. Let me start it with kind of on this side of it. I don't think Peter means that Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. I don't think that's what Peter meant when he was writing to these readers a couple of thousand years ago. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because, and the major one, is because there's unfulfilled prophecy that still has to happen. So like in Luke uh, 21, Jesus says that the temple is going to be destroyed. But the temple has not been destroyed yet. In John 21, uh, Jesus tells Peter that he's gonna, going to live to an old age. But he's, he's still kind of in the middle of his life, in the middle of his ministry life too. And so th- there's unfulfilled things that haven't happened when he's writing this. So I don't think Peter means here that... That tomorrow it's coming. I, I think instead what Peter means is there's unfulfilled prophecy that's got to happen. All of those things could happen within your lifetime. All of them could. It's feasible that all of them could happen within the few short years you have left. And so you need to be living like Jesus could come back within your lifetime. You need to be living like that. You need to be living under the awareness of that. You need to be living under the, the, the thought of it may be before I die that it could happen. And I think the same thing would be true for us as we read it 2000 years later. There's still some unfulfilled prophecy, like Matthew 24, saying that the, um, that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth, to the whole world, and then the end will come. Well, the gospel is not to every people group or every ethnicity yet, but it is very feasible that that could happen in any one of our lifetimes in this room. Feasible for all of us. So I think the same truth would be present. Peter is saying, you need to wake up to the reality that the end of all things is at hand, that Jesus could actually come back within your lifetime. That that is feasible, that that could happen. And then you need to pattern your life underneath that. And in light of that, Okay, so so that's what he's saying here. Okay, now I want to walk through just two practical helps that this thought gives us. How it practically helps us in this pursuit of holiness, in this pursuit of God. So so let me give you two of them. Two, Two ways this practically helps us. It'll be on the screen for you. Number one, it helps us to remember, or in remembering, our role in the world. So so this idea, the end of all things is at hand, that Jesus could come back in your lifetime, helps us remember the role that God has given us to play on this planet. Okay, if you want to look at one of the driving themes through 1 Peter, this is it. It's found in the terminology he uses to describe his readers. So you see it in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. You see the word exile there? You see it again in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. This idea of exile or sojourner. Okay, it, it's got this idea that Peter's reminding him that this is not your home. There is more to come. It's this future orientation. Okay, so I want you to think about how, like, three possible ways you could live in a host country. So it's a country that's not your home. This is what Peter's reminding him. This isn't your home. You're living in a host country. Regardless of where you live, you're living in a host country. It's the exact same thing. You could be American living in America, and Peter would be saying the same thing to you. You're in exile. You're living in a host country, and there's three ways you could live in a host country. One way you could live in a host country is as an immigrant, and if you're an immigrant, what do immigrants do in a in a host country? They assimilate into it. Their lives weave directly into the lives of this culture, right? And, and you give it a generation or two or three, and here's what happens: the, the the grandsons they've lost their language, they've lost the customs, they've lost the values of their other of, of their home country. So they've so assimilated into the host country that they've lost the values of their real country. Okay, that, that's being an immigrant. But you can also be a tourist, and a tourist is on the exact opposite end of that scale. That they don't assimilate and kind of weave their life into the culture or into the country or the culture. They don't do that. They stand on the outside. They're observers of that culture or of that country. Do you see the difference? So an immigrant is all in. A tourist is all out. And, and, and God through Peter is saying, you're not an immigrant and you're not a tourist. You're an exile. An exile takes the best of both and leaves the worst of both. So an exile is this recognition that God has called you in some ways to be an immigrant, that you are to weave your life into this world. You are to seek the welfare of, of this world. Like this is a Jeremiah 29. He's speaking to, to exiles in Jeremiah 29. And Jeremiah is reminding them that you need to seek the welfare of this host country that you're in. So that we are to be a people who are seeking the betterment of our community and the good of our community. But at the same time, we're not to lose our identity in it. We're to take the best of what it means to be a tourist. We're not to to lose our identity. This is a Romans 12 issue where uh, Paul is going to say, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. So, So we're to live in the world but we're not to be conformed to the world. This is the idea. Peter is reminding them of this, that that you are to be an exile. You live in this land, but you live by the laws of a different land. You, You live for the betterment of this place knowing that this is not your eternal home. This is not it for you. There's more to life than this life. Okay, now this is the key. If you're going to live as an exile in this role that God has given you, you have to have a future orientation. You have to see that there is more to life than this life. You've got to see that or you'll never live as an exile. You'll never live in this God-given role of seeking the betterment of our area, but at the same time, not making it home. So it's, it's key. This future orientation helps us remember our roles. But there's also another benefit of it. Secondly, it sobers us to what's supremely important. It sobers us. So this idea of the end of all things is at hand. It's a sobering reality. Look at verse 7. So the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here are the first two commands. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. See, when you stand on the brink of eternity, it has this way of, of making everything that's important become central. That, that word self-controlled in verse 7 is the same word used in Mark 5 to describe the demon-possessed man. Do you remember that story? You've got a man that, that when they show up, this guy is, uh, he's got a legion of demons in him. He is in really bad shape. He has pitched his tent in a cemetery and he lives there. They can't get him to leave the cemetery. That's crazy, right? So we're officially to crazy. He's living in a cemetery. They put chains around this guy and he busts out of them. So we've got part crazy, part incredible hulk. This guy is out of control, right? Okay, so uh, you've got a guy that is is literally, he is insane. So it says that he is going around, he's screaming all day long, and he's hitting himself with stones. So you've got a guy that has some serious crazy in him. Okay, now you, you go forward here. Jesus shows up on the scene and he heals this man. He casts these demons out. And, and then it says that the whole area around that knew this guy, they were all amazed and came to see him. And when they came to see him, here's what they found. He was sitting down. He was clothed. That's a thought. He's clothed. And it says he was in his right mind. That word right mind is the same word in four seven used for self-control. It's this idea of, of you're sane, you're not insane anymore, but you're sane. See, all of us have a way of viewing the world. Everyone in this room, you have a way that you see the world. And this is what it means to be sane is when your way of viewing the world actually corresponds to the way the world is. That's what it means to be sane. You see, in, the, in this passage, Peter is saying, if you want to be sane, if you want to be sane, If you want the fog to lift, if you want to be sane, here's what it requires for you to see that the end is near. You've got to get on the brink of eternity so you can actually see what's most important. And if there, I think this is like one of those areas, and there's many of them. This is one of those clear areas where the prevailing thoughts of our culture are diametrically opposed with the thoughts of the Bible. Culture says this, you're crazy if you live like the end is near. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And the Bible says, you are crazy if you don't live like the end is near. And you know what my angst is this morning for us in the room? I think a lot of us have bought into the lies of this world, the seductive whispers of this world. Insanity is so widespread for us that it looks normal. Living as if this is all there is, is so widespread that it feels normal to us. And Peter's saying, if you want to get out of of this insanity that's normal, you've got to get on the brink of eternity. You've got to look down the road and see what's on the horizon here. So so it's got this way of of, of restoring a sound mind, but he uses this word um, sobriety or being sober minded. I think this is another metaphor of what it does. It sobers us. And listen, we can be be drunk on much more than alcohol. We can be drunk on power. We can be drunk on control. We can be drunk on our conveniences. We can be drunk on the approval of people, on possessions, on what money can buy for us. We can be drunk on a million different things. And the only way that's going to kind of sober you up is for God in his grace to give you a heart that can actually see that there's more to this life than this life. We need to be sober in here. We need to see correctly. We need to see well. So so Peter is saying, listen, this is what this truth does. This massive truth of you staring at what is to come. you realizing there's more to life than this life. It it has this way of giving you sanity, restoring your sanity. And it's got this way of producing this sobriety about you where you're seeing the world well and correctly. Okay, so let me ask you the question. If, If you were living under the weight of this of this truth that there's more to life than this life that the end of all things is at hand if you're if you're living there how would your life actually change but what would be different about you i think for a lot of us it would drastically alter the way that we're living how we're thinking it would drastically alter that like what sort of changes would it instantly produce in you if you had this massive thought over the top of you if you're standing on the brink of eternity and you're actually looking out and seeing This world, there's more to life than this life. Eternity is looming on the horizon. What sort of a life would that produce? Okay, now there's a hundred different answers I think you could give to that question on what sort of a life or what life would look like for you if that were true. But Peter gives three responses. Now, I want to walk you through through these three responses that Peter's going to say if you're on the brink of eternity, here's, here's what sort of a life is produced. There may be more than these three, but these three will be produced in people who, who are seeing correctly, who are actually sane, sober. Th- these will be produced. Okay, so look at them here. We'll, we'll start with number one of the three. Verse seven it says, okay, in light of the, the end of all things is, is near, in light of that, therefore be self-controlled and sober for the sake of your prayers. See, what living on the edge of eternity does is it makes us passionate prayers. It, it puts in us this passion to actually pray. Okay, now I'm just going to make a quick sweeping comment that I think is true. I, I don't, you may or may not agree with it, but I think in the um, uh, modern American church that prayerlessness is rampant. Do you agree with that? That it's rampant. It's all over the place. Now, here's the problem with that statement is it hits a little too far from home. So bring that a little bit closer. There's a reason that prayerlessness is rampant in the modern American church. is because it is made up of people like you and me where prayerlessness is rampant. Do you see that? See the connection there? See, that's where it hits really close to home. I'd invite you just to look at your life. Does this passion for prayer, does it saturate and mark what you do, how you live, this communing with God, does it saturate you? Is it who you are? I mean, is prayer something you do, or are you like a praying person? Does it just saturate you? Okay, I, I I'm gonna invite you to, to just put your life under these two quotes I'm about to read you. I think they would be reflective of the Bible's perspective on prayer in your life. One is from Robert McShane. He was a pastor in in the 1800s in Scotland. He said this, What a man is on his knees, that he is, and nothing more. What, What a man is on his knees, that he is, and nothing more. I just invite you to put your life under that for a second. Let me give you one more here. This is Leonard Ravenhill in his book, Why Revival Tarries. He says it this way. No man is greater than his prayer life. No man is greater than his prayer life. So if we were going to just try to measure, like if you were going to just try to measure your spiritual maturity based on your prayer life, what what would that tell you about yourself? What, What kind of mark would you give yourself if that was the measure you were using for your spiritual maturity? See, now I want you to make sure that you track prayerlessness down to its root. The problem is not prayerlessness. The problem is bigger than prayerlessness. The problem is in our heart when we are prayerless, it's saying something about how we view God and how we view ourselves. See, prayer is an expression of this. It's an expression of a heart that is saying, God, I realize that I don't have the resources, the wisdom, the discernment, the anything to make anything happen. I realize that I realize I am completely dependent upon you. That that is the heart that prays prayerlessness has this heart. God, um, I, I know that you're there if I'm in a pinch, but I think when I look at life, I've got the resources, the wisdom, the discernment, all the things I need to make this day go. That is the heart of prayerlessness, See, prayer is an expression of your dependence upon God. Prayerlessness is an expression of your belief in self-reliance and self-dependence. That you've got this thing. This is why our prayerlessness is a picture of our insanity. It's a picture of how far off we view the world. How our view of the world doesn't correspond to reality. Reality is you need God for your next breath. That's reality. And if we actually believe that, you know what it would create in us? A, prayer, a prayerfulness. It would create in us a posture that says, God, today, if I don't get with you, I am done. If I don't have your help, I am finished. And then I pray for a lot of us in the room that God might humble us to the point where, where we would repent of our self-reliance and self-dependence as if we've actually got the resources to make this thing go. And, and we would see how reliant upon God we are. Amen? Amen. And let me give you four ways that this idea of the end of all things is near, how it motivates and produces prayerfulness. Let me give you four quick ways. Number one, it creates in us a want to get to know the God that we're soon to see. See, when you're on the brink of eternity, it produces in you this want and this this willingness to prepare your heart to get ready for this God that you are soon to see face to face. It produces a want in that. See, when you're thinking about the primary purpose of prayer, it's not to manipulate God to get what you want. The primary purpose of prayer is so you can commune with God and actually get to know God. So I think there's this call and this reminder in, in, this, in, in this chapter here that, that's saying, listen, don't be unfamiliar with Christ when he shows up. Don't be a stranger with Jesus when he shows up. And, and maybe just for a practical help here, don't depend on your spontaneity for your prayer life. It says be self-controlled and sober in your for the sake of your prayers. So that means you need to plan that. you need to get that into your schedule or you're probably not going to be prayerful. You need to actually p- plan how you pray. Not not depending on spontaneity for that. So that's number one. It it creates in us a want to get to know the God that we're soon to see. Secondly, it creates urgency in our praying. When we're on the brink of eternity knowing that Jesus could come back within our lifetime, it produces in us this urgency that's saying, I can't wait for the salvation of my son or my daughter. I can't wait for the salvation of my parent or my mom, my dad, my brother or my sister, my neighbor, my friend. I can't wait for that. God, we've got, to, we've got to see this happen now. Like not next week, but this week. See, it produces in us this urgency. Thirdly, it creates great faith in our praying. Like when we actually are living under the awareness and in light of an all-powerful, dominant ruler of the universe, Jesus is going to come back and set everything wrong in the world right. When, when we believe that, you know what produces in us today? A belief that he could bring some of that now. I believe that like he could heal that disease now. He, he could solve this problem now. He could create repentance and, and give a new heart to this person now. He could actually do that now. Like, not just, like he could do that right now. See, it produces this great faith when we know that we have an all-powerful, dominant ruler of the universe God that we're praying to. And fourth, it focuses our prayers on what matters most. See, when we're on the brink of eternity, we instantly start to pray for the right things. I'm amazed. I think if you just get 10 Christians together and you say, what are we going to pray for? That 99 out of a hundred things that are prayed for are physical temporal needs. Okay. Now I, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that's bad. That's, that's a good thing. It's not, we should be praying for physical temporal needs. That should be a mark of the things that you pray for. But can we all admit in light of eternity that spiritual needs are more important? Can we, can we see that? We have eyes that see that on the brink of eternity, there are some things that are more important than others and spiritual needs are at the top of that list. So that's not saying that we should pray for physical needs less. It's, it's just a, a, an acknowledgement of how little we pray for the most important things, namely spiritual needs. I, I, I noticed this um, a couple of years ago as we were walking through kind of a study through Ephesians in here and uh, Paul is praying for his, uh, the, the guys are reading his letter and they are people in the middle of all sorts of a myriad of physical needs. But not one time does he pray for their physical needs. And again, not saying that we shouldn't pray for that. It's just an acknowledgement of, of Paul is on the brink of eternity. And he knows what's most important. And you know what he prays for? This will be a good representation. Chapter 1, verse 15, 16, 17. God, will you open the eyes of their heart so that they can see all that they have and all that they ha- are in Jesus? Will you open their eyes to see that? See, it's just a reflection of what's most important. I mean, here's my hope for us in this room, that we would get on the brink of eternity and it would produce in us people who pray with unbelievable passion. Amen? Here, here's the second thing uh, Peter says. So, so we've got, we're praying passionately and here it would be the second mark of a person living in light of eternity. That they actually love one another. Look at verse eight. In light of the end of all things, it's near. In light of that, here's what Peter says. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay, now this idea of uh, loving one another, you can see how important it is to Peter by just reading 1 Peter. Four times in four chapters, he's mentioned love one another. This is his fourth time. Each chapter has this so far. Just a reiteration, you need to be a people who love one another. So, so he is all about this. And this isn't just important to Peter. It's also really important in the Bible. It's all throughout the Bible. And, and so we talked about this at length and several other Sundays. So I'm not going to camp on it forever. But let me just remind you of what the definition of, of biblical love, Christian love is. It's wanting and working for the best interests of another as those best interests are defined by God. So it's wanting and working for the best interests of another as those best interests are defined by God. So that means that we actually have to want their best interest. We actually have to desire that. And then it's not just wanting it, but it's actually being proactive as we work for it. Christian love is not neutral. It's not like a, um, if they'll do good to me, then I'll do good to them. It actively seeks the good of people around you. So it's wanting and working for their best interests. And, and then just a the reminder, as those best interests are defined by God. So it's not left up to you to define their best interests. That's God's prerogative. And, and here's God's determination on what their best interest is. It is to know, love, and enjoy Him. So, so we are to be a people who are wanting and working for the good of others, for the best interests of others, namely for them to know, love, and enjoy God. We're to be at work for that. Okay, now I think he gives three expressions of what this sort of Christian love, loving one another, looks like here. Three expressions of it. So, so here's the first expression, verse 8. And he, he uses this word to describe it. Keep loving one another, and then he says this, earnestly. So one expression of Christian love is to love earnestly. That, that means that we're fervent in it, that we're zealous in it, that we're proactive in it. Um, that word earnest is, uh, it, it's a word that like the picture of it would be used, or kind of this idea of stretching a muscle to its capacity. That, that's the image. So if, if you can imagine your muscle getting stretched, someone pushes you down, you're stretched to capacity. And then by the grace of God, you are stretched even further, one extra inch. That's the idea of Christian love. That's the idea of earnest love. It's fervent, it's zealous, it's proactive, it stretches to the limit, and then it goes even further in the way that it would love people. Okay, then he gives maybe um, an implication of what it means to have earnest love. You see the next phrase? Since love covers a multitude of sins. See, earnest love implies that there will be an enduring love there. That we don't write off people, we don't don't, um, wall ourselves off from people, that this is an enduring love. And so the way that we said it a few weeks ago is that when people sin against you, it could shift the way you love them, but your love is never severed for them. The Christian love, this earnest love, this love that covers a multitude of sin is enduring in its nature. It's enduring. Listen, people in here are going to sin against you in serious ways. You know that. We all know that, right? We're there. Serious ways. It's going to happen in this room. And Christian love says this, I will not sever my love for them. I, I, I won't turn my back on them. I will not do that. I will not write them off. There will never be that moment between me and them. It's an enduring love that covers a multitude of sin. Okay, now we have talked at length over the last few weeks about sometimes love looks like confrontation. So we've talked about Cruddy Valley. We've talked about speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4. We've talked a lot about that. And so, and I love, I think this is a balancing passage because Peter is showing us that sometimes love looks like confrontation and sometimes love looks like covering. Bo- it could look like both of those two things. And I, I want to try to give some help on, on how to distinguish on what would be appropriate in each situation. But can I just say there's no formula for this. There's not like a, you plug three examples into the, the equation and it spits out confrontation or it doesn't work that way so this is why maybe just to remind you this this is why you actually need to be communing with God this is why you need to be hearing from God knowing God praying with God so he can lead you in these things let me give you four practical helps in trying to distinguish between when to confront and when to cover Uh, number one and you don't have to write this down I'll post this on the city for you so feel free just to listen number one it's helpful to distinguish between immaturity and defiance that's a helpful di- this thing to discern. Is this immaturity that they will grow out of over time? Or is this pride and defiance that is going to require confrontation for them to grow out of? Because that's an important thing to distinguish here. So is it, you know, is it um, just immaturity or is this prideful defiance? Here's the second one. If an offense bothers you to the extent that it hinders your relationship, you probably need to confront it. So, so if this is a sin that is is serious enough, that is giving you a very hard time in how you relate to them, then then there's a good chance that it probably needs to be talked about in some way, shape, or form. Now, I want to throw this out as a caveat and a caution here. If this is your deal, it's bothering you, so I've got to get this out, we've got to talk about this. If this is your deal, you need to hear this caution. You need to be prepared for someone to look at you and say, you are way too easily offended. Way too easily offended. What should just kind of rattle the leaves in your life is shaking your roots. So, so you, need to, you need to hear that. If, if, if this one's going to be your deal, that, man, it's bothering me, I've got to get this out, then you need to be ready for, for the gospel to come back and apply to you as well and, and to hear someone say, this should not rattle your roots. This should just rustle the leaves a little bit. You're, you're way too easily offended in this thing. Okay, number three, consider the relational component. I think you need to ask the question, do I have the relational capital to be able to speak into this situation? And if you don't have the relational capital yet, if you don't have that built yet, I think it might be good for you to cover that sin for an extended season before you speak into it. We would all agree that, that people that we know love us and care for us, we can hear hard words from them much easier, can't we? We all are like that. There's not a person in here that's immune to that. And so we want to be most helpful in the the words that we speak into people's lives. And it's most helpful when we have a relational dynamic built around it. And number four, I think you need to distinguish this. Is this a minor flaw that just grates against me? Or is this a major character defect or sin that hinders this person's pursuit of Jesus? Okay, so, so is this just kind of an issue that makes it hard for me to love them Or is this an issue that's making it very hard for them to love Jesus? Do you see the the difference there? You need to be aware of that. If this is just about a you thing, then you probably shouldn't confront. If this is an issue that is actually keeping them from a pursuit of God, if this is doling them spiritually... If this is doing those sorts of things, you probably need to have a conversation there. And and this is where, you know, C.S. Lewis calls it the fatal flaw. If this is an issue that is keeping them for their pursuit of God or their demonstration of the gospel with their lives, if they've got this fatal flaw that repels everyone around them, but they can't see it, that probably needs to be a conversation at some point, right? So, So if this is a gospel defaming issue, if this is seriously hindering their pursuit of God, then then at some point there's going to have to be a conversation there. And I, I pray that God would give us wisdom and grow us in our ability to discern. Does this sin need covering or does this need confrontation? Okay. And he gives one other expression of love. The third one, one more expression. He says it's hospitable. Look at verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is the idea of welcoming strangers. And Peter is saying one of the expressions of love, Christian love, is that we're a welcoming people, that we invite people into our lives. We're inviting people into our homes. We're inviting people um, into our resources. We've got a welcome sign that says, Come in. We want to benefit you. Why? Because God has a welcome sign on that says, Come in. I want to benefit you through Jesus. So so we're reciprocating what God has done to us and expressed to us through Jesus. So I'm just going to give you some practical ideas in um, hospitality that these may stick for you. They may not stick for you. That's not the important thing. I just want to get your mind working on some ideas for how you can incorporate hospitality. Let me give you a couple. A lot of you have a spare bedroom. Maybe your kids have grown out. Maybe you bought a house that's too big just for even your family. So you've got a spare bedroom. If you've got a spare bedroom, why wouldn't you leverage that for the good of people around you? I mean, think about that. You've paid serious money for that bedroom. And it's sitting there and what, one night a year, two, three nights a year, it's slept in. But why wouldn't you invite, maybe it's a young single person in in our church family that could really use three to six months free rent. Why wouldn't you invite them in to, as a benefit to them? I mean, wouldn't that be a profound thought for you? Probably a great blessing to your family as well. Um, so so maybe it's that maybe you can look around this church family and you can see that we have a ton of singles 20s 30s 40 and even 50 year old singles in this place And if you're a married couple, what what if you just said this we're going to invite some young singles into our life And what if you were one of the young singles and you said I I want to get around some some of our older married guys I want to see their marriage. I want to invite them into our life It would be a great blessing for each part of that equation uh, let me give one more. This is uh, this has probably been the most productive thing Laura and I have done over the last probably year and a half as it relates to hospitality. Um, on Tuesday night, we keep Tuesday night open. It is our night that we try to extend hospitality, a welcome sign. So we have some of our young singles into our homes, some of our neighbors into our home. We try to get whoever we can find into our home on Tuesday night where they can see all the dysfunction of our family. They can see all that. We can get to know them, like across the dinner table, get to know, right? And so what if you just kept one night a week open and said, we're going to find people to invite over to bless with the meal as we get to know them. And listen, I, I, these ideas may be terrible in your mind. The, the point is, you need to have ideas about how to express this. Like th- this is him commanding hospitality. In other words, if you're not extending it, it's sin. It's not just a bad habit. He's telling you, you love looks like hospitality, I'm I'm commanding you to do this. And I want to just address real quickly um, how living on the brink of eternity actually enables this. See, when you're standing on the brink of eternity, do you know what it does for us? It frees us, for most of us, this constant need that we have of people. See, when we're standing on the brink of eternity, here's what we know. That in the end, we win because Jesus won for us. And do you know what that frees you to do? It frees you to not have to win every conversation. It frees you to not have to benefit from every relationship that you have. It frees you from having to make your point and then hear it all. It frees you from all that. It allows you to embrace people with an entirely different posture, knowing that you don't have to win. You don't need anything from them. You want to benefit them, right? Do you, you see that? It frees you from, from that incessant need to get things from people, to, 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 to always be needing things from people. Okay, and the last one, and we'll be done here. He gives one more thing. When we're living in light of eternity, one more thing that that this produces in us. He says it's going to produce in us a want to leverage the gifts that God has given us for the good of the church. It's going to produce that. In you, a want to leverage all that God has blessed you with and given you for the good of the local church. Okay, so, so look at it here in verse 10. As each has received, uh, received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let me just point out two quick things. First, you are a recipient of God's varied grace. Do you see that there? He uses the word each. If you're a Christian, you're part of that, each one, that that you have received a part of God's very grace called a spiritual gift that God has in his grace gifted you with ways for you to serve for for ways that you could contribute to the church. He's, he's blessed you. He's gifted you with that in the new Testament. There's five um, passages that contain list of spiritual gifts, five of them. There isn't one word that runs throughout any, uh, any of all those five. So, so there's not one word that makes it on every list. And it's just showing you that's a sampling of God's varied grace that is poured out across this room. We have a sampling of it around here. God has gifted you with things to serve his church. Okay, now here's the second piece of this. So you're a recipient of God's varied grace, but here's part two. You're also a steward of God's varied grace. It's not just you're a recipient. God actually calls you to steward those. Like your gifts that God's given you that you've received are not meant by God to be turned inward just on you so you can build your personal kingdom with them. They are meant to be turned out. That's why it says serve one another. They are meant to be turned outward so you can actually be a part of building God's kingdom. Okay, this, this is why God gifted you. Hear that again. The reason God has gifted you with this varied grace, the reason he has poured that out on you is so you could leverage those gifts for the good of his church. There are a million different things that you could be involved in on this planet. A million, a lot of them good things. But do you know that there's one thing that God has stamped and said, this is going to be the way that I'm going to usher in my kingdom, the church. One thing. Can I just plead with you to make sure your life counts in that one thing? That you are investing your time and your energy and your resources into the thing that God has put a stamp of approval on? That that you're doing that? That you're actively involved in that way? And and listen, this this cuts right to the core of our consumeristic culture. Our culture and our churches are full of consumers. Leeches. Leeches. Okay, so, so they attach themselves to the church. And then he, here's their aim. I'm going to suck every drop of blood out of the church and give nothing in return. I'm going to suck everything I can out of it. And when I suck every drop dry there, I'm going to plug into this one and suck everything out of that one. That is the typical church goer. The typical one, not using the, the, this varied grace that God has given them for the building of the church. But, but that varied grace has been turned inward as they take from the church. Listen, if that's you, if you've turned into that leech, that consumer, this would be a great day to repent of abusing God's bride. A great day for that. So I, I like to use this imagery to describe our relationship to the church. That God has called you not to date the church, but to marry the church. Do you know what that affects, this posture of marrying something? When you have, there's a difference between dating and marrying, isn't there? There is. There theres When you have married something, here's what you've said. I am fully invested. I don't care if you get ugly. I don't care if you get crazy. I don't care if you get selfish. I don't care. I don't care. I am fully invested. And that is the view that God has called you to live in in regards to the local church. That you would be fully invested. That you would have a marriage ring on with the local church. We use the imagery of hotel and home sometimes to describe this. Here's the problem that a lot of us have when it comes to the local church. We treat it like a hotel. Now, now how do we treat it like a hotel? Think about a hotel and you. When you come into your hotel room, what do you expect for the room to be perfect? If you smell a little smoke, you call down front. You've got sheets that aren't clean, you call down, they come up and get you new ones. See, we expect when we walk in for the sheets to be clean, everything to be tidy, everything to be picked up, the pillows fluffed, a little mint on the pillow. That's what we expect. And that is exactly how most of us treat the church. Like it's a hotel. Like We're going to come in on Sunday morning, consume these goods and expect it to be perfect. So children's ministry, it better be this. The worship, boy, it better be that. The look around here, it better be like, it better be clean. The bathrooms better be nice. It better all be in good shape when I get here on Sunday morning. God has not called you to view this place like a hotel. He's called you to view it like a home. If your bathroom's clean at your home, why is that? Because you scrubbed it. If your sheets are clean at home, why is that? Because you washed it. If your house is picked up at home, why is that? Because you picked it up. That is the view that God is saying. That's how you need to look at the local church. I have gifted you with things so you could leverage that for the good of the church. It's your home. It's not a hotel. Invest your life into it. Use these gifts for the good of, of the church. Okay, we'll land the plane with a picture. Um, I I want you to think about, uh, this idea in the Bible that the Bible says that you are actually going to live forever. Do you hear that? You're going to live forever. That's an eternity. So I don't know what you think of when you think forever, multiply that by infinity and you might be getting there, right? So forever, you're going to live that long. You're not going away anytime soon. Okay, so we're in this for the long haul. And so, so if you would, picture, picture your life like this rope. You see how long it is? Like it's actually a terrible illustration because this rope is 30 feet long. It kind of stretches over there to the stairs, 30 feet long. Now, if this was reality, we would, we'd have a rope up here that's literally a million feet long. Right, I mean, it's stretching around the world many times over. That would be the view of eternity. That that your life looks like this rope. It stretches on and on and on. Like you've got a lot of life left in front of you. You're 90 years old in here. You've got a lot of life left. Eternity's coming. Like all of this, it's still it's still coming. Right? Do you see this? That you're going to live forever. Do you know what's crazy? That so many of us are living for that little piece of life. You know that front end piece last 50 60 70 maybe 80 years if you're lucky all of our time all of our energy all of our resources invested into this you know what some of us are obsessed with right now retirement so we're we're not only living for the little blue line we're saying god i want that little sliver right here at the end of that blue line to be awesome do you know how dumb that is seriously in light of all of this does that make sense To say that I'm investing everything so that little sliver right there can be incredible. In light of all of this that he's given us. And see, this is the ironic thing in the Bible. It says the the way you treat that, the the way you operate in the dot, this this little few years, this little blue link here. The the Bible's going to say that it's like a flower of the field. It's here one day, the wind blows over it, and it is gone tomorrow. That's your life. That's life here on earth. That's your few years here. You're going to blink a couple of times and it's over. And isn't it crazy? Isn't it ironic? The Bible says the way you you deal right here affects all of this. I mean, the, the way you spend this right there, it alters all of this. All of this right here. All this time right here is being affected by how you do this piece right here. And it is insanity that so much of us and so many of us are so consumed with that dot when we've got the line in front of us. Isn't it? Isn't it? So can can I just plead with us here? God, would you make us people of the line? Amen. Would you help us get over the dot? Would you help us invest the dot in what will be most for this? What will give most rewards here? Will will you help us see that? Will you get us on the brink of eternity where we can see all of this that's coming? All of this so that we can leverage the little blue dot for, for, for that. Amen. Let's pray together. Let me give you a second just to let that just sit over you. <clears throat> there are some of us in the room that, that we have been kind of doweling on the edges of of this whole thing. That Jesus the whole thing so, so we've been kicking the tires we've been looking at this from from kind of the outside just kind of testing this out and I just want to encourage you that time is of the essence your, your, blue, your blue dot is going to go quick and this is why in Romans Paul reminds us the day of your salvation is near now than ever before and so maybe this would be a good day to finish kicking the tires and to push your chips in Maybe this would be the day for you. I mean, listen, get on the brink of eternity here. How how this thing goes now determines the rest of the line. So so maybe this would be your day to quit kicking the tires, for you to push your chips in, for, for you to say, God, I am pushing my chips in for the perfect life of Jesus lived for me. His death in my place and for my sin. God, I'm trusting that you will apply that to me so that I will be accepted. So I will be approved in your sight. So so God, I I hold up my life and I'm saying, I trust you and and I'm treasuring you above all things. And here's the beautiful reality of what the scriptures teach. That in the moment that happens, the God of the universe saves you. this is that moment for you. Our life here is short. Eternity is long. And maybe this is that moment. For Christians in the room, may may this be a moment where God, through Peter, sobers you, brings you into right thinking. You're on the brink of eternity. It's just a matter of, can you see it? The line is long. It's just a matter of can you see it? So when we get under this big truth, the end of all things is near. When we get under that, it produces some things in us. It produces this this passionate prayer. It produces this brotherly love, this Christian love. It it produces this, this want to leverage all that you have for the good of what God says will change the world. So I pray that God would get us there. He'd give us eyes to see that. And so God, by your grace, will you do that in here, in this room, among this group of people, this church family? God, may you write eternity on our heart. May may we be a people who live for the line, not the dot. As the Puritan said, God, may we be a people with our eyes firmly fixed on heaven while our feet are on earth. God, will you help us in that? By your grace, will you do that here? It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.